0: If you are not a member of this church or you visiting today for the first time or maybe you've come sporadically to this church and you're here this morning, I wanna apologize in advance to you because we are in a series called The Supernatural Storyline of the Bible and it began in September and will continue through July. And so there are things that I will say this morning that are building on what many people in the church have already heard. And so I will not have time to explain what everything means so that you get it. But I trust that you will still hear something today that will be beneficial if you're able to stay till the end of the service. If you are a member of this church, you got an email from me the other day that explicitly said there was a scene that I want to look at today that will knock your head clean off maybe. So I intend to show you that this morning and then make uh, a few comments in connection to last week's sermon. So if you're new, stay with me. If you've been around, buckle up. Last week, we talked about the theme of people and that it was spiritual warfare as to why God brought Israel into the land outnumbered To take possession of it. That was what we talked about in summation last week. We also talked about seeing Jesus' words to go into all the world and make disciples. We saw that as a call, like Israel, to fight to take possession of the land. But as we've heard previously, human beings are made from the ground. That in Genesis 2, God made Adam from the ground, and throughout the Bible, The scripture reminds us that we are dust, that we are the land. And so in the New Testament, taking possession of the land is not geographical, it's anthropological, it's people, not a location. This morning, I want us to understand how we became God's people through the life of Abraham to help us further understand what and why spiritual warfare includes us today. Spiritual warfare, biblically speaking, is not just you resisting the devil. If, you, if someone were to ask God, what is spiritual warfare? Do you think he would say human beings resisting the devil? No, I don't think he would. He would start with it being about him against the gods the cosmic powers of evil, as scripture says, in the heavenly places. And we play a role in his plan against the gods as his people. So today, my hope is to make sure that when we hear phrases like work out your salvation with fear and trembling, that that fear and trembling is not of the enemy, but of the Lord. Because for many of us, the fear and trembling is of the enemy. And who he is, not God and what he's done. What I want is for what Paul says in Romans 4 to be an ever increasing reality for those of us who genuinely believe. So that part of being grown and owned is to take possession of the land, which is people. Here's what Paul says in Romans 4, beginning in verse 13. These are his words speaking to people on behalf of God, and that includes us. Here's what he says, beginning in verse 13 of Romans 4, and I quote. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that we would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares faith, the faith of Abraham, who was the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations, as he has been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver, concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. Now think about what he's saying. Abraham received a promise from God that didn't come until decades later. And it said he didn't waver in unbelief. That's a bold statement, especially for those of us who have the spirit in ways that Abraham didn't. How quickly and easily we waver from trusting God when we don't get promises that he never promised, but desires that he didn't give us. But that's a different sermon. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words, it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for yours also, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. The argument that Paul is making here is simply that the righteousness of God, which is a perfect standing before God, that righteousness is by faith not your actual obedience, not by works. And the point that he's making is that Abraham was counted righteous before there was a law given. The Mosaic law didn't come for another 700 or so years later. So Abraham couldn't be righteous by works that he did, but by faith that he had. And so those of us are righteous when we believe. Our obedience doesn't earn us salvation. It proves that we've actually received it. This is what he's trying to say. That faith is the pattern for all of us who believe. So as he says in the this, there's credit to us righteousness as well. Now, let me say this real quick. This isn't where, I'm, where the sermon is going, but I want to make this point. When we think about faith, we have to understand there are layers to faith. All right. Actually, to be honest, the easiest level of faith is to believe that your sins are forgiven. Believe it or not, that's the easiest. You know why? Because nobody wants to be punished. No one wants to go to hell. So if someone says, hey, you believe in Jesus, you're not going to hell. Oh, 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 I believe. That's that's, that's an easy one. That's a no-brainer. Hell or heaven. Let me think about this for a minute. For most people, that's a no-brainer. That's an easy entry-level faith. But then you got to have faith that you're righteous even though you sin. Willfully, you got to have faith that you're a a son and a saint, even though you still sin. That's a different level of faith. Do you believe that? Because if you don't believe that, then how do you believe that when you die, you're going to heaven? Because that's actually the scariest thing of all. There are levels to faith, it's not just, I believe I'm going to heaven. You got to believe that he says you are who he says you are. Otherwise, you won't do what he says do. But that's not the message today. We'll get there in July, I think. Now, here's what makes Paul's argument in Romans 4 interesting. When Paul says that it was credited to him as righteousness, he's It is a quotation around that term. He's looking back to Genesis 15, 6, right? But when God comes to Abraham, it's in Genesis 12. And he tells Abraham, take up your family and go to a land where I'm calling you. And Abraham does it. So why isn't it credited to Abraham as righteousness in Genesis 12, but it's credited to him in Genesis 15? Did he not believe God when he said, take up your land and go? Go to a place where I'm taking you? Why is his faith righteous in Genesis 15 and not Genesis 12? In fact, why was Abraham asked to kill Isaac in Genesis 22 and then God stopped him and said, now I know that you fear God? Did God not know that Abraham feared him before he did that? This is God. Let's see. Let's go to Genesis 15. Beginning in verse 1. After these things, the word of God, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. We're reading 1 through 6. But Abram said, O Lord, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to them, said to him, So shall your offspring be. And Abraham believed the Lord, and he credited to him, uh, he counted to him as righteousness. So we saw this a couple weeks ago in the God Against the Gods sermon. That there were divine beings, evil cosmic beings, angelic beings that God created that were leading people to worship sun, moon, and stars as gods. In fact, we still see that today, but now it's just summarized as the universe. You know, when people be like, well, the the universe is that... Can you can you pray to the universe? Can you ask it for something? So we still have an astral sense of, oh, it's the universe. So God, in order to start redemption, calls Abraham, a man out of the Chaldeans, who were astral worshipers. Their people have historically been known and we even see that in. Uh, Daniel, the Babylonians, Nebuchadnezzar, they were Chaldeans. They were astro- astrologists, astro-worshippers. And so here God takes Abraham, a man who was accustomed to worshiping stars, and says, count the stars, the thing that you're used to believing in a false god, and if you can count them, that's going to be the symbol in which I'm making a promise to you that you will have an heir. And he's credited as righteousness. So I said it two weeks ago, so it's like, okay, we heard that. But let us sink in for a second. An unrighteous worship of stars God uses as the imagery to let Abraham be considered righteous. This is how it begins from God's side. This is the beginning of rebellion reversal of astral worship. But that's not the crazy scene. Genesis 16, beginning of verse 1, 1 through 6. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go unto my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. Now remember, this is before the law and all that stuff. So don't, we couldn't do that today. That would be a problem today. All right. We don't want no problems. This is Old Testament, right? And Abram listened to the voice of Sarah. So after, Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan. So keep in mind, so that, that when, you get, when you read that language of years, that's telling you. That's the la- so 10 years prior to that is when God told Abram, I'm going to give you an heir. So now 10 years later, he's waiting. He's waiting. It's been 10 years since he heard that when he was credited righteousness. And so now his wife, she says, look, Lord, uh, Lord's taking a little too long. I'm not having no kids. So you can take her and make her this Egyptian, my servant, your wife. And it says here in verse four, and he went into Hagar and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, may the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked at me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. If this were a marriage conference, that's all I'm going to say. I don't want no problems. We restore marriages. We don't rip them apart here. But Abram said to Sarai, behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her and she fled from her. So 10 years ago, Abraham has promised children. He obviously tells his wife that. And because she's waiting to speed the process up, she's also 10 years older. She's 10 years younger than Abraham. But she's 10 years older from the time he was told you're going to have an heir, your own son. She's tired of waiting. So she offers her Egyptian servant to be his wife so that her children will belong to Sarah. And it says that Abraham went into Hagar and she conceived and had Ishmael. Let's continue in Genesis 17, beginning in verse 15. And God said to Abraham, ask for Sarai, your wife. You shall not call her Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her. And moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed. And said to himself, shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, no, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father 12 princes, and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. There's a lot happening here. We don't have time to hit all of it. But this is what we will say. This is the first time. This is now 20 years after he was told you're going to have an heir. This is the first time he realizes, oh, it's going to be through Sarah? My wife, who's 90 years old? Oh, okay. Abraham is just like, "Uh, but what about Ishmael? He's already alive, already have a son. And God says, that's not who I'm going to bless. The promise will be through Isaac, through Sarah and his offspring, Isaac. So I'm going to bless. However, because Abraham is counted righteous before God, God says, I will bless Ishmael. He'll give birth to 12 princes. Ironically, 12 tribes of Israel, 12 princes of Ishmael. Ishmael becomes Islam. This is why they consider themselves people of the book, because we are all Abrahamic Religions, Islam, Christianity, and Judaism all come from Abraham. So God says, I'll bless him, but that's not who the promise is going to be. And that blessing is why we are here now. The reality of God blessing Abraham and it becoming people who then become people in this room is stranger than fiction. A brief, a brief explanation. Abraham marries an Egyptian slave and has his first son with her, Hagar, Genesis 16. Not too long after that, Abraham's grandson, Jacob, takes two of his grandsons, Ephraim and Manasseh, who are the sons of Joseph, who are half Egyptian, and makes them two of the 12 tribes of Israel. So God's 12 tribes of Israel... The descendants of Abraham, two of them are half Egyptian. Here's what Genesis 41 tells us, verse 50 to 52. Before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Asenath, the daughter of Potiphera, priest of On, bore them to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my, uh, and all my father's house. The name of the second son he called Ephraim. For God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. So he's married to an Egyptian. He has two sons. They're half Egyptian. His dad, Jacob, tells him in Genesis 48 this, verses 1 through 6. After this, Joseph was told, behold, your father is ill. So he took with him two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And it was told to Jacob, your son Joseph has come to you. Then Israel, who's Jacob, summoned his strength and sat up in bed. And Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you and I will make you a company of peoples and will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. And now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine, as Reuben and Simeon are. And the children that you fathered after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the name of their brothers in their inheritance. So two of Abraham's great-great-great-grandsons are half Egyptian and half descendants, physical descendants of Abraham, and they become two of the 12 tribes of Israel. Not too long after this scene, Abraham's great great grandsons and their families become slaves to the Egyptians for 400 years, just as God told Abraham they would. Here's what God says in Genesis 17 to Abraham, verses 1 through 8. Now, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram. Keep in mind that Sarah is 89. When, Abraham was 90, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations, and I will make you exceedingly fruitful fruitful. And I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. I will be their God. So he's telling Abraham, these people are going to come from you. Later, he says they're going to be enslaved for 400 years. 400 years. They're going to be slaves in Egypt. Keep in mind that all of this began, all of this began with Abraham having a slave that was Egyptian. And now, hundreds of years later, Abraham's descendants are now slaves of the Egyptians. Keep in mind. 400 years later, we read this in Exodus 12. It says this, beginning of verse 33 through 38. The Egyptians were urgent with the people. This is after God kills all the firstborn sons of Egypt. It says the Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste. For they said, we shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders. The people of Israel also had done as Moses told them, for they asked the Egyptians for silver and gold, jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. That's a funny statement. The Lord gave them favor after all their firstborn sons were killed. It was like, man, get out of here. Take whatever you want. Get away from us. But it's described as the Lord gave them favor. And the people of God did this, right? So verse 37, the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot besides women and children. Verse 38, a mixed multitude also went up with them and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. So here you have people, whom God promised to Abraham that would be slaves for 400 years. So it started you're gonna have sex with an Egyptian slave, and then your people will be slaves of the Egyptians. I'm gonna bring them out, but when they come out, a mixed multitude of people went with them. So when we get to Exodus 20 and the giving of the law to people, a mixed multitude which means physical descendants of Abraham and non. Gentiles, Israelites, Gentiles are mixed in together and given the law of God. These are the people I'm making a covenant with. It was not all Israelites. There was a mixed multitude who heard, who were at Mount Sinai and who agreed to follow what God commanded. Not too long after that, the Assyrians took the 10 northern tribes. So there were 12 tribes. 10 of them went to the northern kingdom, Israel. Two, Judah and Benjamin, went to the southern kingdom, Judah. The Assyrians in 722 BC took all of the 10 tribes as punishment for Israel's continued disobedience. Let me read you brief commentary on what is said here. This is what happens in Second Kings 17, 1 through 23, gives a detailed description of this event. But here's verse 6. We're just going to read verse 6. It says this. In the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria and deported the Israelites to Assyria. He settled them in Hala in Gazan on the Habor River and in the towns of the Medes. Here's commentary on this particular idea. These passages record the Assyrian conquest and subsequent exile of the northern kingdom of Israel, often referred to as the lost tribes of Israel. These passages record the Assyrian conquest. The animosity was exacerbated when the Assyrians conquered the northern kingdom and deported many of the Israelites, replacing them with the people from other conquered lands. So they took the Israelites and combined them with other people, and they became one people group. That people group intermarried, and you had another people group come out of that, the Samaritans. And so the Samaritans, because they had some Jewish leaning, they believed in the first five books of the Bible, the book of Moses, but they had their own thing going on. But because they were half-breeds, the Jews hated the Samaritans, because the samaritan's were the result of intermarriage as disobedience from to God but that disobed that mingling of the people made them a nation cuz some of those people are people that belong to the descendants of Abraham whom God promised to save And so when God allowed Assyria to take them and mix them up, though their identity was lost, God remembered his promise to Abraham. So now they are Gentiles, but salvation has to come to them because God made a promise to the descendants of Abraham, and two of his descendants started as half Egyptian, half Gentile. It was never only Israel. It was never a mixed multitude left. It was never only Israel. Over time, Jews came to see Samaritans as racially impure because they had intermarried with non Israelites after the Assyrian conquest. Samaritans were seen as half breeds who had corrupted the purity of the Israelite race and faith. This view was evident. In the insult thrown at Jesus in John 8:48, where his opponents call him a Samaritan and demon-possessed. So back then, to call a Jew a Samaritan would be like to call me the N-word. And I don't mean like when you black and we both say that word, like, yeah, hey, what's up? I'm talking about when it's a racial slur. I ain't talking about when we cool, I asked my dude. I'm talking about when it's a racial slur. So they call Jesus, you Samaritan. And people would be like, oh, who are we going to do? That'd be like someone stood up and called me That Y'all would be like, what's the pastor Kirk going to do? I would pray for them. <laughs> Despite this animosity, Jesus challenged these prejudices. He used the parable of the Good Samaritan to show that neighborliness is not a matter of race or religion, but of mercy and kindness. Also in John 4, Jesus had a respectful theological conversation with a Samaritan woman, acknowledging her faith and revealing, the messianic, revealing his messianic identity to her, which was radical given the cultural norms of his time. I'm just going to say this because I'm not going to build on this, but I just want to make a point. In the Gospels, the only time Jesus revealed who he was was to Gentiles. He would always tell the Jews, he wouldn't even let the demons say, he'd be like, Stop. He didn't want them to know who he was. But when he goes to Mark 5, that's a whole Gentile region. And when he cast all those, the legion of demons into the pigs, that was all Gentiles. So when the, the, the guy who, was, who had the demons cast out, he said, man, please let me follow you. And Jesus was like, no, nah, don't do that. But go and tell everyone what God did. But when he's talking to Jews, he said, do not tell anyone what the Lord did for you today. Just go to the temple, get clean, and that be it. But then people would be like, hey, well, this happened. but like, who did it? This dude, Jesus. And so he didn't want the Jews to know who he was, but the Gentiles, he said, this is who I am. He told the Samaritan, he said, the one you are looking for, the Messiah, is the one you're talking to. And then it says they went to Samaria for two days and preached the gospel to them. They believed in John 4, Samaritans. By the time we get to the New Testament, we see this happening. And so in John 10, 7 through 18, which we're not going to read, Jesus equates Jews and Gentiles as one people that belong to God. So from the beginning of Israel formed as a nation, Gentiles were always a part of it, were always included. So when Jesus came, it made sense for him, I'm coming for everybody. Because the promises were made to Abraham, however, some of the descendants of Abraham are Gentiles. That was God's design from the beginning. But that's not the crazy scene I wanted us to see. That's not what I was talking about. Let's go back. In Genesis 17 is when Abram is told that Sarah is going to be the one that has the child. And he's going to name him Isaac. Here's what we see in Genesis 18. Beginning in verse 9. They said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, she is in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year. And Sarah, your wife, will have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now, Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, no, but you did laugh. (laughs) This is why I know that Jesus had melanin. That's black stuff. But you say, no, you did laugh. You did laugh. I know you laughed. I imagine him say, no, but you did laugh. Probably added, don't play with me. Don't salt my intelligence. You know how your mom, my mom used to tell me that as a kid, I didn't know what it meant. Now I get it. Don't salt my intelligence. Said, no, but you did. That's one of my favorite verses in the Bible. No, but you did laugh. And I imagine he said it just like that. Now, in Genesis 17, it was Abraham who laughed, but this time it's Sarah, right? Here's what's interesting about what's happening here, though. In Genesis 16, 3, let's look at this language again. So after Abram lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarah, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, his servant. God gave her to Abram and gave her to Abram as a a wife. And he went into Hagar and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. So Abraham knew his wife, Hagar, and they had Ishmael. But look at the language of Isaac's birth. Genesis 21, 1 through 7. The Lord visited Sarah as he said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his own age, in his old age, at the time of which God spoke to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore to him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised him and so forth. It's interesting that it doesn't say God opened up her womb and Abraham knew his wife Sarah and conceived. That's not what it says. It says the Lord visited Sarah as he said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he promised, and Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age. It doesn't say Abraham knew his wife Sarah like Abraham knew his wife Hagar and conceived. God is intentional. Why is this language like this? Did Abraham know Sarah and she conceive? That's what we would say. Yeah, sure. Why not? Or did she conceive without Abraham so it was clearly a work done by God and God alone? And is the language that Abraham knew his wife omitted. Because he didn't. It was all God. Whatever you think the answer is, here's what's important to recognize about this scene and how it connects to the supernatural storyline of the Bible and how spiritual warfare fits in. Keep in mind, God, after Babel, said, okay, let's go to war. God initiates 300 years, 320 years after Genesis 11 is Genesis 12 with Abraham. 320 years in human history passed from one chapter in the Bible. All right. God initiates his attack on the gods by reestablishing a people that belong to him. And so after Abraham, Isaac is the first of those people born to become God's people. So, Abraham was chosen, Sarah was his wife already, but Isaac is the first one born, and he's born solely by God. Now, keep this in mind. This was a devastating chess move. Keep in mind that God is the Alpha and the Omega. Keep that in mind. He's the Alpha and Omega. We hear that three times. The only time that's said in the book is in the book of Revelations. Revelation, three times. God waits for the last book to say he's the Alpha and Omega. Keep that in mind. So God allows Sarah, who is at the end of her life, and well at the end of her ability to give life. And from that ending, He creates the beginning of redemption. And then we get to the New Testament. We see the reverse. Look, listen to Luke one, verse twenty six through thirty three. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to be a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, "Greetings, O favored one! The Lord is with you." But she was greatly troubled at this saying. <laughs> I wonder what she was, was she troubled at what he said or that it was like, who is this dude? Looks like not a real dude, like something's wrong. She said she was greatly troubled at the saying. It's almost like she knew like, man, all the people that are favored by God go through it. You look at the Old Testament. Listen, this is the word for you. Listen, I tell people this all the time. If you look at the Bible, the Bible is not a story of suffering about people who reject God. The Bible is a story of the suffering of people who love God and whom God loves. It is biblical. So when you are struggling and suffering, it is not a demonstration that God doesn't love you. It's a demonstration of God is treating you the same way he treated people that we admire in the Bible. It's a story of people whom God loves that love him that suffer. So when you suffer, it's not the absence of God's love, it's actually the presence of it. But that's not what we're talking about today. That's not our point today. We'll come back to that. And the angel said to her, verse 30, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, And the Lord will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Now, remember, God's the Alpha and Omega. So, God, the Alpha and the Omega, which means the beginning and the end, right? He takes Sarah, who was at the Omega of her life at the end, and makes her one and only son, the Alpha, the beginning. Of motherhood for her. And then he comes to Mary, who is at the alpha of her life and says, your child will be the omega, the end of the enemy's reign. So the alpha and the omega goes to Sarah at the omega of her life and starts the alpha of spiritual warfare and then goes to Mary, who's at the alpha of her life and says, your son will be the end of spiritual warfare. This is a flex of God telling the cosmic powers of evil, you're too small. Without using these words, alpha and omega, God is flexing his status as the first and the last. Something no cosmic power of darkness could ever say or be. Jesus does the same when he says this to the church in Matthew 28. When he says this in verse 18. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And behold, I am with you as always to the end of the age. So all authority on heaven and earth has been given to Jesus. This is spiritual warfare. And and he is now commissioning his people to reclaim all all his people who have always been Jews and Gentiles. It was Jesus taking possession of the land, setting in motion the pattern for his people to do the same. So then, what does that mean for you and I, especially those of us who are challenged by the reality of doing this? Last week, I talked about the reason for not taking possession of the land, which we would call evangelism or mission, was a fear. I said we have to be careful not to be like Israel in numbers who was looking to the promised land to take. They were supposed to take possession of the land, but they saw the people were too big and were afraid. They were afraid to do it. There was a split. There was a split. You know what that happened? That was so devastating that all those people didn't get to go to the promised land. So now you're going to wait 40 years until your children grow up, till you all have passed away, and they will go. So we talked about being afraid that we can't be afraid of the people and their God, so to speak. We shouldn't be afraid of witchcraft or Satan Con or whatever they're doing. If you don't know what that is... (laughs) Google it, it happened two weeks ago in Boston, a conference where people were worshiping Satan, dressed up as demons and all of it, fun times. Today I wanna give a different reason that has nothing to do with fear, nothing to do with fear of why I think many of us find it difficult to tell other people, even family members who we love that we don't want to perish Why we don't say anything about Jesus? I want to give a different reason. And I want to give one brief strategy. The reason is that we have an unbiblical view of faithfulness. We have an unbiblical view of faithfulness. Let me explain why I'm saying that. 1 Corinthians 3. Beginning in verse 1, reading to verse 9. Here's what Paul is saying. But I, brothers... Could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you were not yet ready, for you were still of the flesh. For while there there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? I'm going to look at this passage principally. And there's the difference between contextually and principally when it's in context, this is what Paul meant when he said it. And then principally, we can take a principle or two from it. I'm going to say principally because contextually, Paul is talking about him and those who were called to preach the gospel and establish the church. That's what he's talking about. That's why he said, you are God's filled, God's building. You are the mission field that we're reaching, the building that we're building. But Paul, Apollos, we're the ones that are the servants who are planting, watering, and so forth. That's what he meant in context. He was talking about him and those guys. Principally, there's a statement here for us, and I think an adjustment. Verse 7 is the key, principally speaking. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. So there are people who plant. So planters are people who introduce the message of the gospel to other people. So like missionaries, I've been overseas. You guys have heard my stories in India and other parts of the world. These people had never heard of Jesus. So we were going there to plant. We're planting. We're telling people about Jesus, right? Then there are people who water. And waterers are people who are talking to people who've already heard the gospel before, but they don't believe yet. And so it's not new to them, but you're talking to them and that's watering. You're watering. And then God causes the growth. Here's why I think many of us do not share and we're unfaithful in some sense. Because we think that the only success is the growth. And so we want to see people believe. And if they're not going to believe, we're not going to say nothing. How many of you have seen something felt like, man, I should share the gospel, but you may size them up. They ain't going to believe. They're not going to believe. And you've talked yourself out of being faithful. And you've convinced yourself that they're not going to believe and probably no idea. But what if God didn't save them? But he just said, plant or water. See, I think we we live in America, the capitalism country of the world, where Fortune 500 companies have what's called an ROI, a return on investment. And much of the church in America has become so corporate that when we think of evangelism, the return on investment is people getting saved. And if we think if no one's going to get saved, then I don't want to do anything unless I have a guarantee that they'll believe. So we'll talk ourselves out of planting and watering the people because we've already shared with them. But you're just watering. What if someone that you planted a seed or water didn't believe you didn't see it? What if God didn't want you to be the one to see it? But then five years later, that that seed that you planted or that thing you watered, those couple conversations led to that person coming to the kingdom. And I guarantee that there will be some of us in this room who will get to heaven having forgot all those conversations. And we'll get there and we'll see people and know them and be like, oh, my gosh, you made it. And they're going to thank you because you said something to them seven years before they believed. And that paved the way for them to accept the gospel seven years later. And if you want proof, go to Matthew 25, where Jesus separates the sheep and the goat. And he says to the sheep. Come for the kingdom that is prepared for you. For when I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. You visited me in prison and they said, when do we do this stuff? And he said, when you did it to the least of these, you did it to me. They didn't even remember that they did it. And Jesus said, the fact that you did it is why you're coming home. Many of us generally want to see people saved. But we're selfish and that we want to be the one to lead them to the kingdom. And so if we think they're not going to believe, I'm not going to say nothing. And we talk ourselves out of being faithful. We need to redefine faithfulness. Do you know in the New Testament, there are no verses that directly say we save people? Do you know that? There's only one verse that directly ties saving to a person, and that's Paul. Here's what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9.22. He said this. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means, I might save some. That's the only time. The second time that's close to it is in Jude 22 and 23, where he says this. And have mercy on those who doubt. And we talked about doubt last week. Have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. This is the only other verse that it says save. One of the verses which says save. And this doesn't have to be someone who doesn't believe, it could be someone who's slipping. And you save them, it doesn't have to be an unbeliever. The only time it's directly the actual word save and people is connected to Paul. It's connected to Paul. What does the scripture say to us? We're going to talk about this later in the series, but in 1 Peter 3, Peter just says, look, always be ready to give a hope, give an answer for the hope that lies within you. There are no biblical commands in the Bible and in the New Testament that say you and I save people. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. God is the one who causes the growth. My responsibility is not that people are saved. The return on investment is not conversion. Faithfulness is a conversation. It's not conversion. I'm not irresponsible if people get saved, but I am responsible if I say something or just ask a question. So you couple this with being afraid to do so, it's no wonder we champion what everybody else is doing. Hey, thank you, Michael. We love hearing about metamorphosis. Hey, we got an event Saturday. I'm busy that Saturday, though. I'm busy that Saturday, though. When's the next event? Third Saturday of every month. You know what? For some reason, I'm busy that Saturday every month. I've been there. I felt that way. I'm not coming down the mountain with two stone tablets. I've been there. Faithfulness is not conversion. It's a conversation. We plant and we water. So you can't think, man, I've been telling this kid about the gospel for all this time, they still don't believe. What if you just thought, you know what? That's not faithfulness to me. I'm gonna keep telling my children this. I'm gonna tell my coworkers that. I'm gonna just say stuff. And if I don't see them believe, so be it. And if they don't make it, God causes the growth. We don't. It's not your personality. It's not how clever you put words together It's not your appearance. None of those things save people. When you lead someone to the Lord, God said, I'm going to let you be the one to see me cause the growth. It's not, oh, this is, you know how many books I've read on strategies and this and that? It's so many books written on evangelism strategies. But how come the world is becoming less and less Christian? America becoming less and less Christian and you can go to a, a bookstore and see dozens of books hundreds of books on evangelism so either we not reading them or they not working
1: right.
0: Right. Right. Ecclesiastes said no more books need to be written guess when Ecclesiastes was written <laughs> I'll let you do the math so then what do we do with that what's a good strategy then What do you do? How do you do this? I'm an introvert. I'm not not talking about me. I know I ain't no introvert. (laughs) I don't like to have conversations. I don't know what to say. I'm not good at. What do I do? First of all, remove yourself from the responsibility to save people. And let me give you an analogy from something Jesus said. Here's what Jesus said in Matthew 5, verse 13. Here's what he said. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under feet. You are the salt of the earth. Okay? Let's think about that concept principally for a second. Let's think about the concept of salt. This is Jesus' language, not my own. You're the salt of the earth. Contextually, he's talking to the people who were listening, the Jews and stuff like that. Principally, believers were salt of the earth. Okay, let's think about what salt actually is. Many of us have eaten food. Some of us don't even want to eat people's food because we know, man, they ain't going to have no flavor to it. (laughs) If you like me, you might keep a little bottle of seasonal with you when you go to certain places. (laughs) Like, man, I got a little bit. I, you know, say no offense. How'd you like it? (laughs) (laughs) Hey, Hey, this is the whole point. It was the seasonal. Without that, it would be a grind. I'm I'm actually fasting today. I'm not really eating. But you eat food, and it doesn't taste that good. And so what do you do on the table? You, let me grab some salt. And you just put a little bit on. Right? Yes. Right? You just put a little bit on. That's it. It changed the taste of the food. What happens if you keep putting salt on? You can't eat it. And if you do, you're going to die five hours later. Right. Some of us who think we got to see people saved or else we putting too much salt on the food. So every conversation has to get to the gospel. No, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. <laughs> got to put it on. Then when you do it, it comes off because you you put so much on, you ain't know how to do it. You was just waiting for the entry point that when it finally came up, you just burdened it out. I mean, you got to believe in Jesus or you're going to hell. I'm sorry. I just got to tell you I know I love you. I didn't want to (laughs) be. And the person is like lee. And then you get offended thinking they don't want to hear the gospel and they offended because it was too much salt. It doesn't taste good. You got to put a little bit of salt on. So how do you do that? A little bit. First of all, you cannot save people. You don't cause conversions, but you do have conversations. So how do you do that? when you? How do you be salt and just add a little bit? You know what you do? It depends on your relationship. But if it's not somebody you're close to, and you got a coworker and it's awkward because you don't want to just, sh- if you share the gospel at work, there may be consequences. You know what you can say when they talk about their weekend and they say something, you can just say, man, praise God. I was, I was praying the other day and just guess what that was a little bit of salt. You know what? I bet you it's people in this room that your coworkers don't even know you believe. I'm not, you they only know you believe. They might think you a cool person. They don't hear you complain or do much. Listen, whoever said, Preached the gospel and when all else fails, use words was lying. Because especially in this day and age, nobody cares about your life. Right. Nobody cares that you don't go to the club. They mock you for it. Nobody cares that you serve in your church. They think you weird. Nobody cares about that you don't cheat on your taxes. Who even knows that? Hey, I don't cheat on my taxes. What do you... <laughs> the things I don't do, the Ten Commandments of work. I've never stolen a staple from my job or anything. Who cares? You need to be able to let people know what you believe. And you don't got to throw all that salt on it and put all of that on it. But when someone does ask you a question, don't be like Israel and afraid to give an answer because the people are big. So if they ask you, what do you really think about this sexual community, be honest. And when they get offended, be like, what you expect me to do? I believe what this is. Be mad at this. It's like, listen, this book wasn't written five years ago. This book went a couple thousand years. I just happen to believe the book. the James Earl Jones, this is the book that got bubble cooked. I'm, I believe the book. It's the book. I, I believe that. Don't be ashamed to say that, but you don't got to weigh, weigh in every time there's a conversation. Well, let me tell you what I think about a little bit of salt. So sometimes you just say, you know what, man? Praise the Lord. I'll be praying for you. One of the things I respect about Mike is when sometimes we, we go out to eat and we'll do like a staff meeting. And we'll just sit at the table, we'll go to like Outback or something like that. And I, I know, I know. And so, and when we go there, the, the waitress or the waiter will come, and sometimes Mike will be like, hey, I, I'm, a per, I'm a man of prayer, I like to pray. Uh, I, I'm not trying, is there anything you like to pray for? And they'll just be like, sometimes people will be like, oh, uh, I mean, uh. but how many times have people just stopped and talked for a minute? Well, my grandmother is sick and I've been praying for her. And they, all of a sudden it just got real. And all he said was, I'm a man of prayer. Would you, would you like prayer? They say no, we don't be like, well, now nah, you need prayer though. The, the Bible says they go, that's salt. let me. So you need, hey, listen. If you reject God, you go doing that? Doing that. Like if you don't want prayer, look, even in the gospels, man, Jesus told them, go into a household of they reject. He said, man, shake the dust off of your feet. Keep it moving. We we'll won't be like, now nah, you need. We'll be like, okay, no problem. And we still pray for him anyway. Right, right. But the fact, I, I learned that from Mike, and they'd be like, oh wow, just, hey, listen, I'm a person of prayer. He don't even be like, I'm a pastor. My church is just, we believe the God. Man, I've heard man, how many times we heard people be like, I'm a pastor in a Jesus Christ and I believe. It's like, man, sit down. Ain't nobody impressed by that. <laughs> Nobody's impressed. I'd never tell people I'm a pastor. Never. Who cares? First of all, I don't look like a pastor at all. <laughs> if I tell people I'm a pastor, they'd be like, you, you? <laughs> I mean, I would have said, you know, maybe like an old rapper or something, but a pastor, like you, just old football player or something, you a pastor? That's not impressive to people. What's impressive is just intentionality, authenticity. I ain't trying to force you to believe because I ain't responsible for you if you don't. I'm not responsible. Even as a pastor in this church, when I stand before God, I'm not going to be responsible for what you all do. I'm going to be responsible for what I said in my example. I'm not going to be responsible. If my kids grow up and they reject the gospel, I hope not. But as long as they can't say my dad was a hypocrite, mm-hmm. then I, I, I mean, I'm going to be torn apart, of course. But they not, I, as long as they can't blame me for my example, I can't force my kids to believe. What I can, do is make sure they know it was probably was real. Mm-hmm. My dad wasn't one way at home and one way at the church. Mm-hmm. It was the same. We can't, be trying to do that with our children, our family members at every gathering. Like, how do I preach the gospel? You'd be pouring all that. Man, just plant and water. Do you know how to plant and water? Here's how you do it. Just either, hey, praise God for that. Or if it's a situation, hey, listen to your coworker. I'm going to pray. I got some stuff going on in my life. I just need to pray. Can I pray for anything for you? You're going to lose your job for that? You got people ready to lose their jobs to stand up for Jesus. And he might be like, you need to sit down. (laughs) I don't need you to stand up and defend me in your workplace. Just be faithful. If it comes to you, don't be afraid. Too much salt. Too much salt. Just give a little bit. At what point do we say, okay, let's put this into action. How many events does Mike and metamorphosis have to do before some of us say, when's the next event, bro? When can I be there? We need practice. We're rusty. You can go to an event and just hand out food. Listen, Mike got a food drive every month. You know when people are the most apt to listen to whatever you guys say? When they got a basket a bag of food coming. They got a bag of food coming. They'll, t- they'll listen to anything you say. Hey, man, you know the universe is like, oh, yeah, OK, OK. Or <laughs> oh, that food. You can just learn how to have conversations. Hey, what brought you here today? Listen, I'm a person of prayer. Can I pray for you? Can I pray for you for anything? You have no, when you ask that and you show compassion, people have opened up to me and Mike in a restaurant. And look at me. Who wants to open up to me? They'd be afraid when I walk up. Like, hey, put your watch away. Put your watch away. The big dude is coming. I don't mind. I know who I am. So I'd be jolly with it. Hey! i be crushing stereotypes. They see me coming, hey, man. I'll kill all them stereotypes. I'll be out there like Carlton. It's not unusual. I'll crush all them stereotypes. I don't care. I ain't ashamed of how I look. I know who I am. I understand. I'm good. I'm crushing all stereotypes. But when I'm actually talking to people, and they see, like, why this person really cares? Now I just asked them to pray. Now they got tears in their eyes, and now they're listening to me. They're opening up to me, and I've known this person all but two minutes only because I just put a little bit of salt on. I ain't got no shirt that says, God, you're going to hell if you don't believe in Jesus. I'm not ready to slam it down people, because I know I'm not responsible for their salvation. I'm not responsible for their conversion, but I am responsible for the possibility of a conversation. And when we stand before God, that's what he's going to ask you, not who did you save, but were you brave enough to even have a conversation, to put a little bit of salt on, for parents who, who want their kids to grow up and who think like, man, we've been saying it, you just keep watering. Keep, when you plant it, just keep watering. Keep watering. You don't know. When I was in the hood, we used to say, we used to, we used to make up this song called, Every Day Above Ground is a Good Day. And we was crazy. We'd be riding around with a gun on our lap. Every day above ground is a good day. Hey, with a gun on my lap. But we understood if I'm alive, there's possibilities. Some of the people that we worried about are alive. We can't do nothing about those who've gone to stand before the Lord. But the people who are alive, parents, if that's your, keep watering. Keep watering. That's all you can do. And don't think, man, I wish I had done this, this, and this. You don't know if they'd be saved if you did that. You can't prove that they would be saved if you had been a better this or had been the. You don't know that. You have no, that's reverse sovereignty. You have no idea if it would be different. What you do know is this is what I got right now. Whatever mistakes you've made in the past, just water. Water and see if God causes the growth. And when He does, give credit to the Lord. I'm a pastor, I got three boys. I would not be shocked if one day my boys are, my youngest son, JP, is his man. He'd be excited to see JP more than his dad. <laughs> Become a homemade son. Hey, poppy, did you see JP today? Hey, go ahead, man. Don't be asking me about no, no JP right now. man. I mean, just because I came from the church. You talking about JP to me, man. I'd be getting offended. No, I'm just playing. I don't get offended. I don't get it. I'm just playing sort of. I don't get offended. <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised if one day a conversation with JP clicks for him. Poppy, I talked to JP and I get it. Like, I, I'm a believer now. Now, I got two responses. Oh, really, son? I've been telling you this your whole life, and now you're acting like this the first time you heard it? I'm all offended. Like, what you mean, son? I've been telling you this. Haven't I been an example? What, what? Or I can be like, praise God. Right. Right. Because it wasn't me being a pastor or being a Christian that my sons believe. It was because God caused the growth. And if he gives JP the conversation, and he waters the seed that I planted, as long as it grows, I'm good. And that's how we need to think, as long as it grows, it doesn't have to be me. In this, in this sense, we are in God's way too much. Little bit of salt. Little bit of salt. You plant or you water. Now, we're going to hear more about this in July as we get practical, but I wanted to set this before you now. And now I want to call Pastor Mike up to do communion and have him just share any words that he wants to say about this topic. And after you do that, we'll do a quick Q and A.
1: All right, well, first thing I'll say is, uh, thank you very much for that word right there. My brother, let's go ahead and give God the glory. and um that was like a swift transition so i'm i'm, I'm, I'm... Hmm. yeah um so i just want to build off before we go into communion which i forgot my communion joint so if somebody babe if you can give me it's on top of that's all andreas is Johnny on the spot thank you my brother appreciate you um <laughs> that's right that's right <laughs> um is, is this the uh, the thing to remember about god giving an increase is um is this um i pray this oftentimes i don't know when the lord's allowed me to start seeing this but when paul is addressing people in athens acts chapter 17 uh it says so paul verse 22 standing in the in the midst of the arabic in the Areopagus, excuse me, that's where they went to just talk about all kinds of things. Said, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I was passing along um, and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So who gives to mankind everything? God. We know that. Check the box. We know that. And he made from every, from one man, every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place we oftentimes hear people say oh you were you 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 were born for such a time as this that's the way we say what's stated here that he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth having determined he determines The times that people live in, he determines where people live. So whenever you come into contact with someone, this is another thing that that's really helpful for me. That is not by coincidence. God has put me right now in this moment in contact with you. Now, what I do with that, what you do with that in your world, that's up to you. But but just remember that the God who makes things grow is the God who places us in people's paths. And places people in our paths to hear a word, maybe, possibly, probably. Because he puts you in their path. And he's still the God who is having his kingdom advance. And he's advancing it through his people. Romans 10, people will not believe in a Jesus that they have not heard of. So if you are one of his children and you're in the pathway of this person God has put you there so that's something else to just remember and and, and I just I just I want to want to focus on on this part of uh, this for communion um I'm sorry I need to finish I'm finish 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 reading the verse all right so 27 says this is why we are placed in people's pathways 27 says that they should seek God And perhaps, right, again, it's not on us. Perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. And the fact that you who knows the Lord, you who are the Lord, you who are his land is in contact with this person. Demonstrates that he is not far from them. So don't undersell yourself. Recognize who you are because of God, not because you're so big, not because I'm pastor, not because of that, but because Jesus Christ has saved you and deposited his spirit within you so that he can make himself known to other people through you. So remember that about yourself. All right. So I think that in light of what we heard about Abraham, in light of what we see here, that one thing we can say about God is God is as Uh, I'll give Flame, if you listen to Gospel Rap a long time ago, his credit that God is the first missionary. He is the first missionary. And he is about reconciling people to himself. I'm sorry, I have one more verse. That's uh, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. This is going to take us to the uh, communion. (laughs) 17 is very familiar. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All of this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Not the ministry of judgment, not the ministry of assigning people to heaven or hell, but the ministry of reconciliation. That is Christ. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting us to us, rather than to us, rather, the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, making uh, God, excuse me, making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he, God, made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In light of God's missional heart, in in light of what God is doing, and in light of what we've experienced through Jesus, being connected, being reconciled to God ourselves, we are to remember that that is what Christ has accomplished for us, that he has reconciled us to God. So we're going to take these elements which represents the body of Christ that was placed on the cross to receive the penalty that we deserved in order for us to be able to receive the grace of God without God violating his justness. We take and we eat the wafer which represents that body. Thank you, Jesus. And now we drink the juice which, recon- which represents the shed blood of Jesus for us. Which reconciles us to his father, God. The Alpha and Omega, let's drink. Thank you, Father, for being a missionary. Thank you for going out of your way. Thank you for sending people our way to tell us about you. Lord, may we be faithful, Lord. We know that you will be fruitful if we be faithful. So, Lord, would you help us to be faithful that we might see fruit for you sometime, and in eternity we'll see the fruit more clearly. And when we see it, we'll just glorify you for it. Therefore, we start by glorifying you now and thanking you now for all of this. Thank you so much for your heart, your grace, and your mercy. In Jesus' name, amen, amen, amen. I love
0: that, faithful and fruitful. Brothers and sisters, a little bit of salt. Just sprinkle it, that's all you need. A little bit of salt, you plant or you water. If it doesn't grow, then it wasn't meant for you to be the one who sees it, and that's okay. Any questions?
1: Um. Yes, there are, there are only a few right now, okay. so if you have any, start sending them joints when Pastor Curtis is answering, all right? Um, okay, all right, very good. Some people responded immediately. Um, so so uh, let me jump to that first question. Uh, the appearance uh, to Abraham. Um, was that an appearance of Jesus in human form or a foreshadowing of Jesus coming in the flesh or something else? Someone asked. So, so
0: next week's message is the plagues in Egypt. So we're going to get a a zoom in to God against the gods. I've been waiting for that message for a long time. In that message, I'll make this point. I'll elaborate. That often in the Old Testament, many believe, which I believe too, the angel of the Lord is the Lord. And when you see... So when you see that kind of language... Or well, sometimes you'll see, and Abraham saw three men. Uh, well, yeah, yeah. I think I think it was. I think, I think, I think the Lord is in the old. It appears in human form in the Old Testament. The difference is He's not incarnated. He wasn't born as Him, but He can appear in Him just like angels do. They appear in human form. So, that, was that Jesus? I I think I think it was. The language the Lord God said, the Lord is, we, we say it so often, we, we forget that that's, that's the way that it's included. Like in the New Testament, it's the Lord. In the Old Testament, we think of God. But often when you actually read it, it says the Lord God indicating that they were both there. And because Jesus said before Abraham was, I am, uh, it's doubtful that that's not Jesus I'm there with Abraham. But we'll, 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 we'll elaborate when we look at God against the gods in, in the plagues of Egypt next week.
1: All right. Uh, Someone asks, um, could you reiterate how our being faithful in planting and watering connects to the story of Abraham and Gentiles being part of God's promise to him?
0: Because the promise, because God didn't make a promise to Abraham just to save. It's a it's a spiritual warfare reality. Like there's nothing about the gospel that is not about God taking back and fighting against the gods and he uses humans. So Israel in the old Testament, Abraham's descendants were to go in the land and take possession. We're Israel, Abraham's descendants in the new Testament, but we, but the people. So every time we are interacting with people and talking with people, that's spiritual warfare. It's, it's taking possession of the land and who demons possess. We saw that demons are. So how that connects to Abraham is, well, that's what it's all about. It's, Abraham's, Isaac's birth is the beginning of God taking back people, fighting against the gods, both in functional land and then by faith, the possession. So it all connects to, that's the reason why we do what we do. It's not separated from Isaac is the beginning of essentially the prophetic promise to curse Satan in Genesis 3.15. Isaac is the beginning of that. And it comes from Abraham's faith, and now we're, by faith, in Abraham's family, and so we are engrafted in to the spiritual warfare that it is. But it's not just resisting the, the devil. It's also going to take possession of the land, being to tell other people about it, and that's how it all connects.
1: All right. Um, are there any upcoming events or opportunities for Metamorphosis or Solid Rock? where we could have the opportunity to either plant or water or sprinkle some salt. Hmm? That's my Scooby-Doo.
0: <laughs> that joint was right. I've been working on that joint for a long time, too. That one and my dog bark. <laughs> Scared many people in my day. I've had to repent from doing it too much before. Yes. So on June 24th, Saturday, June 24th, from 11 to 4... We are having a carnival here. We're gonna have moon. It's not just for you, but we're gonna have moon bounces. We're gonna to talk to. Uh, we need. We need book. We need that. We need book on the grill. We need Mike on the grill. We basically having a carnival here. El Shaddai, the church that, that uses our bed, they joining us, and we're just gonna reach the community. Mike's gonna get the word out. We're just gonna invite people, and if people come welcome, we're just going to talk, have fun, and just use that as you on our turf, right? You coming to our church, you're going to get a little bit of salt on that food, right? And if nobody comes, then our two churches, we're going to have a good time. We're going to do an event every month, once a month. So we're doing one in June, we're going to do one in July. In July, right now, we're trying to partner with uh, Emeka and FCA to host a basketball tournament, possibly at Parkdale High School or... We're gonna go ahead and clean up the down there, put three baskets down there. The other day, I texted a friend who I'm who is friends with and connected me with, and I know him, Gary Clark, who's an old uh, Redskins Super Bowl champion Hall of Fame receiver. I texted him the other day and asked would he be interested to come out to that event in July and speak to the students about what does it mean to get into being an athlete and to have integrity on a professional level. So he'll. So this is a red skin great. He'll be here. All right, he's just waiting for me to give him all the details. So we're not playing. We're taking it serious. In August and September... I won't, I won't be around in August. You know, more on sabbatical. So we're going to take August and September, kind of recalibrate. And then the goal, the goal, the goal would be we do an event every month in October, November, December, and just keep going until next July. That's the goal that our church does it. But we can't do it if the same, if three of us just show up right. and just do that. This isn't like we're, we're past the days of it being optional. Everyone can't hit every event. But you can pray, but everyone should hit an event. Yeah. There should be there shouldn't be a member. Nobody's that busy that right. you can't hit one event. Mm-hmm. I think part of it is we're just afraid, or we're uninterested, or we just don't, I don't. I'm not good at it. Listen, God causes the growth. Right. Just water. Right. Just water. Plant a Sprinkling a little salt. Mm-hmm. When people come, don't be like. Listen, you need to be. Is, how you doing? How are you? Get to know somebody, you might make a friendship and then later on you texting them, hanging out with them. You don't gotta give people so much salt and I think that's crippled the church. Mm -hmm. But you also don't just do it by your example. Mm -hmm. That's also crippled the church. You gotta say something, but it it takes time to learn, okay, how do I say this? How do I bring this up? And so sometimes they say, oh, praise the Lord. That will know, oh, okay, this person believes in Jesus. Mm -hmm. Just like that, you've already said who you are. Now, hopefully your character doesn't change that. But you know how sometimes you just be having a bad day. You know, listen, listen, I would not put a bumper sticker of fish on my car for the simple reason that I will be judged by the way I drive from that bumper sticker. So I never put it on. So anybody that I cut off cannot blame Jesus for my
1: for my for my lack of character.
0: But Mike also has uh, some metamorphosis stuff he can say.
1: Yeah, um so uh before we move to Metamorphosis stuff, I just want to announce that um our brother Mecca Daruji is fully funded and yes. working with yes. Yes. So they actually uh did a clinic at First Baptist Church of Glen Arden yesterday oh with over a hundred basketball players from DC and PG at the basketball clinic. So they're already on the move and there are other Boom. things that are coming. Um, as we mentioned, as Pastor Kerr mentioned in July, we're very hopeful for that three on three. That's big time around here because people love basketball around here. Um, also, don't sleep on the homeless the homeless outreach. Yes, part of yes. Where, they where they at? Please do not hold sleep on, hold on, on the homeless Duane, outreach. Dwayne, stand up, please.
0: And Dwayne, who else serves on that team with Dwayne Homeless Outreach? Uh, man me over here. Stand up, Tommy. Thomas. Thomas. Over there, John Fair over there. Stay up, please, stay up. Please. I know your leg hurts. Just give me... Anybody else, anyone else serve on that on that ministry with win
1: Kevin. Karen. Thank you.
0: Lee. Been happening for years. Faithful for years been doing that. For those who've been doing it for you, I know some of y'all knew. I ain't you know, I ain't trying to get
1: <laughs> um also I just want to uh, mention that uh, we had that monthly food distribution, the next one isn't until June 17th. We did one yesterday. We actually have some leftovers out there, if anybody wants some cabbage. Mm-hmm. Or uh, potatoes is out there for you after church. Um, but we have uh, so the, we the have The cabbage food. might still be there after we leave, though, bro. You better hope. It, we, might, be. <laughs> it might
0: be. You know, people people was like, cabbage? Oh, man. That's like, potatoes, people was like, oh. Amen. but nobody smaller than cabbage. And you can do a lot with cabbage, though. You can. You can do a lot. Yeah. I, I ain't going to eat it, but you can do a lot with cabbage, though. <laughs> You can do a lot,
1: though. I ain't gonna. So we'll 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 uh, let you let you know. uh, But actually, this this Wednesday, this is a very low key event for for anyone. But if you can make it out to the Riversdale House Museum, that mansion in Riverdale, um, the Greater Riverdale Thrives Community Coalition, which is a uh, program of Metamorphosis, we're having a meet and greet. So it's just snacks, talk to people. It's a it's low. Low hanging fruit, just face paint. You're out there to just interact with folks. So um, and then we're also looking at having a cleanup day at uh, Parkview Gardens, where uh, many refugees and immigrants live uh, right around not on on, uh, Riverdale Road, right past the parkway. So uh, those things are coming up. Um, So those are some events. We always have stuff going on um, because there's just a lot to do. There are many people who need to know the Lord. And in many ways, we can serve our community. And you um, know, some
0: people, real quick, some people just need a friend. Yeah. Sometimes, oh, like, don't don't make it about yeah. like they need to get just. Be, sometimes, some people just need a friend. Right. Some people just are lonely. Right. They are just lonely. They don't have people. They it's just some people just need somebody to be like, hey, how you doing? Right. Is there anything I can help you with? And just just start there. You don't have to be like, all right, man, I gotta tell them Jesus. You, it's time for that.
1: So some people just need a friend. There's right. a lot of lonely people out there. And the the surgeon general actually said that loneliness is an epidemic, Mm. an epidemic that has the effect on people of smoking 15 packs of cigarettes a day. Wow. So please don't underestimate the power of your presence in people's lives. Like the world is seeing that loneliness is an epidemic. And you know what? We have the type of community community that could have a great impact. So please don't, again, don't minimize yourself. Um, So uh, two more questions are left. Uh, This one is, what was the faith, in all caps, of Abraham? What was it actually in since Jesus was not yet born? It was in, it wasn't
0: in, Abraham's faith was in the person who, it was in the promise that God made. So you have to remember, like, so in Galatians, it talks about, and uh, God preached the gospel to Abraham, right? Saying that you you will be uh, your, your offspring will be a blessing to all nations that's not how we would think the gospel is, right that's not the gospel isn't always what Jesus does. but for Abraham it was I believe that God promised something that makes sense. I believe it I can't see it, but I believe it's true because he said it. so Abraham's faith was in God and then what God promised he believed that God could do it, and that's why I was like and he believed it despite the fact that he, there was no way he could do it. Um, before, before you ask the other question, because I wanted to get Mike up, I, I, never, I didn't really say this, but I want to say this now since this question was asked. You know, to, I said this, that why wasn't it credited to him in Genesis 12, but it was credited in Genesis 15? And then I said that, why did God say, now I know that you fear God when he was willing to kill Isaac, as if God didn't know that before? You know, to have faith in God, biblical faith in God, you have to have faith in something you cannot do on your own. See, when Abraham left in Genesis 12, anybody could travel. I mean, that's what everybody did. People packed up and moved away. He may have listened to God, but it didn't take anything for Abraham to leave and pack up and move. That was something that he could do without God. You could do that. But biblical faith, what Abraham couldn't do was produce children. He couldn't do that. So when he had faith, he had faith in something he couldn't do on his own. And it's the same with us. None of us can get to heaven apart from Jesus. There is no good works that you can do from God's perspective that are good enough. So in order for us, the reason why our faith is credited as righteousness, like Abraham's, is because it has to be in something you cannot do on your own. We cannot get to heaven on our own. Abraham could not have an offspring, could not have heir. He was too old. And his wife, Sarah, was old. So his faith was in something that God, only God could do. And that's the essence of biblical faith. Hebrews 11:6 6 says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. For whoever would be near, draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. And many of us with them, of course, we believe that God exists. But do you believe that God exists in the way that God says he exists? Right. Right. That's a different question. Mm-hmm. So, again, our faith, biblical faith, is I believe in something I cannot do on my own. And God says when you do that, that's righteousness to him. That's why he told Thomas, look, you believe because you can see. Doubting Thomas, well, I'm gonna put my, I need to put my fingers in the holes. Jesus showed up out of nowhere. So here you go, Thomas, put your fingers in Thomas was like, my Lord and my God. He said, yeah, you say that because you see me. But blessed are those who do not see and believe. That's precious to God. I cannot do this on my own, so I'm trusting you. But what about killing Isaac? Why did he say, well, now I know that you fear God. Didn't God know that? Of course he did. But principally speaking, sometimes God wants things from us that so challenge us that when we do them, we're not showing God that we'll do it. God is showing us that we can do it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's not like God needed to, God showed Abraham that you're willing, your faith in me was willing to take your son or you at least believed, because he told the guys who were with him, me and the boy will be back. He so believed the promise of God that even though God said, I want you to take the life of your son, He knew in some way, shape, or form, he's coming back. There are times when God is asking us, like in this example, I think God is asking us to make disciples. But like Abraham, many of us have to be willing to kill something that we love. And for some of us, it's our own comfort zones. For some of us, it's our time. It's our safety. Fill in the blank. Some of us need to be willing to kill things that we love so that we can obey God. Mm -hmm. And so he asked Abraham to do that, not because God needed to see that, but so that Abraham could see that. But he also did it because he knew that the people who have faith like Abraham are gonna read that story one day for thousands of years and realize, I may call them to kill something they love too. Mm -hmm. And I think in many ways we love ourselves. One of the things I hated about like Oprah and all that stuff, now, I don't hate Oprah, but I hated this idea as you have to love yourself and forgive yourself. The reason why Jesus said, love your neighbor as you love yourselves, because there isn't a person who doesn't love themselves. Right. <laughs> it's, just, it's a given. The fact that you breathe, eat, you wear clothes, you take care of yourself is proof that you love yourself. You don't need to love yourself more or forgive yourself. You need to accept God's love and his forgiveness, and then you demonstrate that to other people. And to, and to honestly, to do the things we're talking about, People will be fired up, and then come June, be like, oh, I can't make it. Hey, my kid got a little bit of sniffles. It might be COVID. Mm-hmm. I don't know what you... I remember one time this person told me on Tuesday, we had a meeting on Saturday. Hey, I ain't going to be able to make it Saturday because I'm not feeling well. I was like, but it's Tuesday. Right, right. So you ain't going to feel good for the next five days? <laughs> this was way before COVID. It was... Me and Mike laughing at that all the time. Me and my wife laughing at all the time. We're like, hey, babe, I ain't going to feel good next Tuesday, so... This is like I think sometimes we have to kill the things that we love the most and many of that many of us it's gonna be our comfort zones, our time, our energy, our I could be at home chilling, I had a long week, but the event is tomorrow. How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news.
1: So the last question I saw that it was there, but it's not it's not a question. I'll just go ahead and read it. Um It says, um, no question, but thank you guys for your faithfulness. God has answered so many questions that I've had uh, through this sermon and given the giving of tangible directions on how to share the gospel. Um, There has been so much fear uh, surrounding this for me, and I'm grateful for the direction. Thank you.
0: Mm.
1: Well, thank you, whoever sent that in. We appreciate you. And uh,
0: I just got a question in from a text. Do we have flies and stuff? We don't yet, but we will. We're gonna get flyers and all that stuff for the carnival. So that's June, that's why I call them flyers. I don't know what y'all call them. <laughs> <laughs> I'm old school, I still call these flip-flops. They be calling them, hey man, where you get your slide from? Slide, what you talking about slide? They flip-flops to me, but I'm just old school. But we will we, we will have some kind of advertisement in paper form and something digital that we'll put out there so that people know June 24th, we're gonna blast it right here, 11 a.m., We're going to have a good time. We're bringing people to us. Bring your kids. Have fun. We might even have a dunk tank in there. We're thinking about all that. So you can dunk all the people like these people over here that you get to. All that. I want Roger in the dunk tank. I want him sitting in that joint. I want Roger in the dunk tank. (laughs) That's the dude right there. I love that dude. Thank you so much for coming today. Thank you for being here. Thank you for listening. If you have any further questions, I'm hanging out. Uh, others will be here. Appreciate you. Don't forget if you got call groups this week in your call group. Uh, next week, God Against the Gods, the plagues of Egypt. Crazy. It's going to be crazy next week. Love you guys and we'll see you then.